Hey everybody, what's up? This is Joseph Coyne and welcome to the ACA Podcast. This ASCA podcast is proudly brought to you by Vold, world leaders in human measurement technologies. Vold systems are used by more than 1,500 of the world's most elite sporting teams, high-performance centers, and clinics to accurately measure human movement, performance, and rehabilitation. Vold's product suite includes the Nordboard hamstring testing system, ForceDex dual force plate system, force frame strength testing system, and Airband's wireless BFR cuffs. Also available are the Smart Speed Timing Gate system, for accurate and reliable speed and agility tests, and the Dynamo handheld strength and ROM dynamometer and inclinometer. Vold, for when accuracy matters. Hey guys, welcome back to the ASA podcast. I'm your host, Joseph Coyne, and this is episode 92. Hey, so I want to thank everyone who came out to the conference at the end of last year. Absolutely awesome event. There's some wonderful information shared by all the presenters. If you did miss out on it, please go to strengthconditioning.org. I know the ACA puts up all the recordings of the lectures. They're probably up there now, so make sure you jump on those if you did miss out. Now, one of those conference presenters from last year uh, it gave a wonderful presentation. Is the guest for this episode. His name is Paul Downs. Paul is the Head of Athletic Performance and Pathways at Moana Pacifica, Super Rugby Franchise in New Zealand. He's a PhD candidate at the University of Edinburgh and is an accredited SNC coach with the UK SCA and ASCA. He's had 18 years applied coaching experience, worked across a number of different uh, rugby franchises in both northern and southern hemispheres, and he's a great guy, ton of experience in rugby union. He's actually a UK coach, uh, helping out my native country, New Zealand, to be better at the sport we love, so I absolutely love the guy. So some of the things we talked on on this episode was a setup he helped create at Moana Pacifica in their first year, and the management of training when player availability was super, super important. For example, they did not have a reserve grade or academy to draw players from, so if there were too many injuries, they might not have been able to field a team in their first year. Alongside this, we chatted on things Uh, like screening options in rugby union, letting players choose the type of strength conditioning work they do in a certain framework, of course, and how to use the comparison of change of direction and non-change of direction conditioning tests to determine what to do with players in their training. So absolutely awesome chat with Paul. I really want you all to get a chance to listen to this. So let's get this podcast going. All right. We are back here on the ACA podcast um, on a welcome back, actually, Paul Downs, um, all the way from New Zealand, uh, or in New Zealand at the moment. Uh, Paul, thanks for coming on, man. No, pleasure. Appreciate the chance to uh, have a discussion. Yeah, awesome, mate. Awesome. Hey, uh, so Paul, mate, tell us about how you got started in this industry, how you sort of um, got your got your first sort of uh, foot in the door, and then take us through from where that uh, occurred to now what you're doing at the moment yeah so it all happened by accident really uh, I was a student in Bath University in England and fortunate on that course to have the option of a sandwich year like most keen undergraduates throughout lots of letters everywhere to anyone and anyone who might be interested fortunately enough for me Auckland rugby in 2003 took a punt uh, so went across and just immersed myself in everything they had to offer from an academy level to a first team level. Fortunate enough to learn off five or six very experienced coaches at the time. And 
when I looked at the sports psych realm, nutrition, biomechanics, physiotherapy, S&C resonated with me the most. It's something I thought if I pushed pretty hard and kept learning, I might be half decent at it. So went and finished my degree and managed to get a job straight out of university in my home borough with a national division one team in rugby union and just cut my teeth there uh, in a semi-professional environment. 21, 22 years old, but having to hold my space and really value the interpersonal piece, I suppose, with 34-year-old grizzly pros versus young kind of 19-year-old academy upstarts who are going to be the next big thing and trying to play that tension in the middle with limited resource, but really having to make the most of what you've got. I did that for a couple of years whilst trying to crack through my master's. Had another chance to come over to New Zealand in 2007 on a six-month placement as well. Um, built up my professional network over here and was fortunate enough to get a lead academy role with Wellington Rugby January 2008. And again, just dove into that developmental space, loved it and all the lessons that came with it. That then flowed on into a role with the Hurricanes. And then 2014, my wife and I, with our uh, first child, came across to Cardiff, did two years leading the performance program there, came back to New Zealand, uh, led the athletic performance space with Auckland Rugby, and fortunate enough, uh, got a role with Moana Pacifica uh, in terms of starting up this inaugural franchise uh, from the athletic performance space. And we've just got through our first season of Super Rugby Pacific and all that came with it. So... It's been about 19 years all up, but it's been thoroughly enjoyable from the study through to hopefully finding a bit of a grounding right now over in Auckland. Mm-hmm. Man, great journey. Great journey. Hey, um, especially because you're in New Zealand, right? In my home country. I love it. Um, and you're helping us be good at rugby. So I love it even better. Uh, mate, what is a sandwich here? I've got to, I've got to uh, swing back on that. What is a sandwich here for the listeners? So it takes three years of the academic content to get through and finish your dissertation. But after two years, there's a third year where you can go off and do an industry replacement should you uh, be able to get one. And I think it's a real difference maker. Um, we've actually just had three students from Bath with Moana this year, seven months of which was virtual because of the borders. Mm-hmm. But those students were excellent. And come the 1st of May when borders opened, they were actually able to finish the last six weeks of the season with us and kind of go full circle with their placement. So I think it's a real difference maker beyond maybe a six-week placement because you get that full industry immersion. So you both do that really well with some quality supervisors, really leading the students into that space. Mm, yeah, that's cool. That's cool. That's really cool. Now, let, let's get on to uh, this minor Pacifica, and obviously a normal franchise, um, rugby union, super rugby. Uh, mate, tell us what it looks like setting up um, sort of philosophies and a framework for an athletic performance program for something that's just you're you're building that thing it's such an interesting project when it's from scratch because there's no heuristics there's no bias there's no this is the way it's always been done so you get to really go big picture and truly understand the purpose of the organization now it sounds a bit backwards for someone who's uh, from England, but certainly the vision is by Pacifica for Pacifica. We're trying to promote pathways and legacies for young males, females coming through, not only on the rugby field, but off the rugby field, trying to inspire communities 
is it actually a new vocation and a new pathway for Pacifica physios, nutritionists, SNCs? So how can we help to create inspiring role models who are leading with integrity and dignity, but with really high standards of excellence? Um, for me, it's been uh, really inspiring hearing about the stories of, uh, and the legends of Pacifica heritage. Master navigators uh, able to go from island to island, um, navigating the biggest and deepest and vastest of oceans with limited resource, but high intelligence, circular intelligence, and the ability to really glean out all the information from an environment. And we did that on this project as well. So 28 out of our 38 in the squad have never played super rugby before. So what might have worked in other environments for our head coach, our assistant coach, other service providers, we use those experiences, but we take it all to make the most out of the, the environment, the population that we've got, the resources that we've got. Um, so when we're going forward to putting frameworks in place, what do we need with a group of debutants in particular, some really senior pros as well, to compete in one of the hardest competitions in world rugby? 16 rounds, no bye weeks was our starting point. But because of COVID, we also weren't going to assemble until the 5th of January. So again, our philosophies and frameworks were always evolving and adapting. Because ultimately we had 13 sessions on the grass, a pre-season game against the Chiefs. And then we were relocated to Queenstown um, to play the first two or three rounds of the competition. So our frameworks and our philosophies were centered around getting to a point where we could physically compete and impose ourselves on the competition, play in a style authentic to us. Our frameworks and philosophies were based on high availability because with no replacement players and no academy to lean on, we needed to make sure that out of our 38, as many as possible have that training durability and that competition durability to put their hand up for selection and compete every week internally. And then finally for our it was actually recalibrating what a 10 out of 10 was. It was the ability to educate in a non-patronizing way. Like, what does it actually mean to be a professional athlete at this level? With so many of the squad never having played at that level. They've played the sport for a number of years, but taking the performance ceiling, the preparation ceiling, the recovery ceiling to a new level, at one that would allow us to stand out and enjoy the competition. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it's super interesting. And I can just imagine the challenges sort of associated with that. Um, you, you talked about uh, this high availability because you, you didn't really have a, a second team or a, a, a mm. development team or an academy. H how did you set up things to, to sort of maximise that with such a limited uh, preparation period? We really relied a lot on feedback from the athlete in terms of take the time to explain to us how you currently prepare. What do you do on a day off? What do you do on a double training day? What's the hardest thing you've ever done? And just try and get an understanding of where they're at. Um, some of the boys, highly flexible, high speed, like these absolute capabilities and the more noticeable physical qualities were actually at a truly excellent level. Um, but the ability to truly understand how to produce force, how to absorb force, how to redirect force um, was a little bit by accident. And therefore, for 
for us, it was we'd invested a lot of our um, CapEx budget on screening to really find out what we could do, not what we couldn't do. So when an athlete would turn up on a morning, we'd go in and just use it as a checkpoint and then spend time in the discussions to go, well, if your number's this, it means we're doing this. But also, what do you present like in terms of a mental state? What's your mentality on the day? What behaviors are you showing? And how can we get the most out of each day? So we spent a lot of time on session purpose, on day purpose, and the concept of marginal gains, not on the one percenter, but marginal gains in terms of, are we better than we were yesterday? Did we sleep better than yesterday? And do we understand why? Did we eat better than yesterday? And do we understand why? Are we coming with a better mindset and mentality than yesterday and why? just to make sure that collectively we could raise each other. Um, because again, with 38 players and only 23 in the squad and only 15 named, the implications of a non-performance or a poor performance for us would just be uh, highlighted so much more when we don't have that safety net of extra players, that safety net of experience. Uh, everything had something on it. So we really focused on the process. Mm-hmm. Yeah, man, I, I can imagine it would have been uh, um, definitely high stakes at times. What Can you give us an example of the um, screening you just mentioned? Like there's many different mm-hmm. ways athletes might get screened when they come into a footy team or something like that. Can, can you give us a practical example of um, potentially one of these screening uh, mechanisms you had in place and then what those numbers would mean, whether it's a, it was out of 10 or, or uh, whether it was a certain um sort of number that I'd hit on a device and then what you'd actually do with it and how you'd discuss that with the player. Yeah, we, we spent a fair bit of time using the Vault technology. So we'd invested heavily in that. So we do a counter movement jump with hands on hips and then we do a 30 centimeter drop jump um, looking at RSI in particular. Um, we did our groin squeeze and our groin pull or our hip pull. And then we also had our, um, our Nord board available to us. Now, on a day one, day four, so coming off a day where we haven't seen an individual, we'd really look at the counter movement jump and the RSI of the drop jump, and we'd also look at the hip. Our rationale for looking at the hip was more just in terms of force absorption. The makeup of our squad instinctively, even without signing anyone, was that we'd have high force capabilities, but our ability to actually absorb and withstand that through the pelvis was going to be huge to us. And we'd learned a lot about that in the previous four and a half years with Auckland. Similarly, with the counter movement jump, more as a movement screen than anything else, the actual counter movement number for jump height didn't necessarily mean a lot. Just watching how they're achieving the number was more than anything else. So the, the actual depth of range of motion at the hip, the knee, and how they were absorbing that number, how they were landing rather than the number itself. But the RSI was really interesting for us in terms of, again, how much effort was it taking? How apprehensive were they actually stepping off the box and landing? Or have you got an athlete who's super elastic and producing an RSI of four, but by accident? And again, if someone's ready to pop and go on that day, really setting them up to succeed, to spending more time on Soleus prep, Achilles prep, a bit more time on deceleration in the warm-up. So if someone's bringing their A game, by accident, just giving them the best chance to do that safely and repeatedly. So again, using the technology and the time on screening to tell us what we can do 
not what we can't do. So yeah, a bit of a bit of a coach's eye and a bit of a, a number interpretation on that front. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. The uh, so you mentioned sort of day one, you might do the counter room jump, RSI, and and, and the hip uh, uh, like a ductor squeeze and and abductor uh, push, mm-hmm. I'd imagine, or, or pull. Um, and you also mentioned day four as well. What that, that brings me to a question: What what does your like typical week uh, normally look like? Um, considering you've got those screening uh, intervals one, one and four, and then how how does the rest how does it fit into the rest of your week? Well. I'll give you a, a roundabout answer. We got a typical week twice. Um, we ended up playing six games in 22 days. So we got a lot of storm weeks because of COVID. But a typical week would have looked like, and it was actually our last week of the season against the Brumbies. Day one, uh, we'd invest a lot of time on relationships. So the players would come in relatively early in the morning and would have about an hour to get through our screening, which gives us that time as leads of department really to understand what's come through the door. We'd have time in our team meetings to uh, have our lotu and our pese. So we'd have a prayer, him really set our intentions for the day and connect as individuals in a group setting, really get calibrated as to what's our harmony for the day, session meetings. And then in that time, just making sure we've got the information about what we're trying to get from a coach's perspective. So I would have a mapping and alignment meeting as coaches. And in that, you're just using your ear to detect, okay, what's the mindset for the day? What's the mentality for the day? Where's our big rocks, if you like, on the grass? So normally a day one from a volume point of view, like most teams would be relatively low and it's that install day. But we always went with the, uh, the lens of, from an individual point of view, if someone hasn't played with no reserve grade, day one was our, our max velocity day, if it was on. So we'd use our free lap, as an example, we'd use live technology just to make sure we've got a 90% top speed exposure within the last 10 days. So if we've screened, if just looking at the mentality of the athlete on the day it's on, we were not afraid of, of going purely because it was one of the superpowers we, we wanted to promote in the way that we played. And we had it more of as a prophylactic effect. We actually wanted to run fast to make sure we were set up to withstand it in competition. So again, we'd push most of our backs to go over nine meters per second by the end of day two, if it was responsibly on. So we'd stage it in the warm up, just checking at seven, checking at eight. And then that last rep, whether it was through a free lap, whether it's live on a GPS is, if it's on go, if not, we're okay right now. So just having the time and space to stage a maximal effort without forcing it to be a clutch effort if it's not on. Similarly, if a player hasn't had uh, game exposure the end of that training session would be game space training with a primer just to make sure we get some decent heart rate exposure above 90 percent but also try and replicate the densities of the axels d cells and meters per minute because we had no reserve grade no club grade so unfortunately we would be at the mercy of selection or nothing so we wanted to try and get everyone on a level playing field in an efficient manner by the end of day one. Whereas if you'd played, it was really installing the game plan at a low volume, low intensity leading into day two. Day two, high contact load. Um, again, like probably most teams, uh, just gives us enough time by the end of the day two or the Tuesday, as an example, to recover sufficiently from that contact load to still be fresh and ready 
at the back end of the week. Because of our low training age, I think it's probably important to highlight that we actually left all of our resistance training to the end of each day, regardless of day one, day two, or day four. Uh, it just meant we weren't carrying any lag or any undue fatigue into the next session or into the grass. So we, we were of the philosophy and the mindset that if we had a really good gym session, there might be some of that neural fatigue, there might be a cost of the following violent efforts on the grass. Whereas we felt it was a lot easier to modify and adapt a gym session than it was a grass session. So in terms of keeping the main thing, the main thing, each player had never been in a Moana environment before. So we had no idea how they would respond to our working week. And all we really had was the transition reports from other teams and athletes self-report. So rather than put ourselves under undue pressure, we took the mindset of scheduling grass first taking stock of the cost of that session and then we do the resistance training at the end of the day and it it worked out pretty well for us we didn't have a soft tissuing campaign um possibly our our gym was uh, more suppressed than other environments but for us with selection and availability being the main thing i think that worked really well for us this year and that was same with a with a day four so it was a one session day uh high running speeds, lower distance covered. And there was some athletes that in the past might have done a primer or might have done some sort of activation session in the gym. We would just spend time in that high trust, high conflict, high engagement discussion just to try and get an aligned purpose of why the gym second. Ultimately, we don't believe it made a difference from a detrimental point of view, but it certainly... Uh, helped the sell when the availability was high. So we got good buying on that. Uh, we had a couple of athletes that like to have a lift on a day five as a captain's run. But as a general framework for us, day one was low volume, low speed, low meters per minute if you'd played. But if it was on to go as a non-23, we absolutely went. Day two was pretty homogenous for everyone. Day four was our, our big day. And then day five, we would push hard, with the non-23 to get that game exposure, especially with COVID. Um, we'd, we'd go for low contact load, but we would try and get our game replacement done at the same time as captain's run, backing that if we needed to recover within 36 hours and go on the bench, as an example, rather than do it on game day, we felt that was too close with the moving piece of COVID. Mm, yeah, cool, cool. That's that's a wonderful insight. Wonderful insight. Do you think if you uh, like moving forward? I'm actually because you've been on the podcast prior. Um, it was a mm. roundtable, I think, in 2018. Um, I'm going to ask you some questions about things you might change, but I want to ask you this now. Um, moving forward, the obviously uh, field first, gym second makes a lot of sense, and and for a number of different reasons. Um, if you have used it uh, differently in the past, like gym first, then field. Um, do you think you'd move away from that now and, and it would be almost exclusively field first, gym second? But how do you think this experience now has sort of uh, formed your opinions or, or um, views moving forward with, with what you might be doing in the future? Yeah, it's a good question. I think now that we understand each other at a deeper level as individuals, um, I've learned so much this year about mentality and just almost every heuristic bias that you might have had, all your experiences to date that leads you to be confident in your methods. Everything got shaken around the last two years and you've been, been almost been forced to look at things a different way. 
So just because it doesn't fit theoretically doesn't mean it doesn't work. And certainly with our front rowers, um, they would like to have a lift before their contact session just to feel a little bit more prepared. So I think we're looking at it in our review in terms of having the ability to lift or a window beforehand, but you just got to come with a really compelling reason why and the content within that. So just because it says it's a weights window pre-contact training, half an hour of that might actually be shoulder prehab, range of motion, neck prep, and it's how you shape your mentality going in. There might be a big push in there. There might be a big pull and that's it. And then your auxiliary lifts might be at the end of the day. So there's, there is that genuine activation rather than a genuine full session. So it's just setting the session preview, the session expectations and having a really clear why, as opposed to I'm going to do it because it's the way I've always done it. So really good question. And it's part of our review is probably windows at either end of the day as your schedule and then delve deeper as an individual level as to how that fits your full performance plan. Mm -hmm. For sure. So um, that's a great response, R really good response. The uh, And it's got another thing sort of circling around in my head now is on that individuality um, or in individualization for different athletes and having these windows, say the front rowers, pre-training mm. to do the workout. You also mentioned the uh, um, some of the athletes like doing some type of lift uh, in and around the captain's run. Mm. Um, obviously, there's those sort of windows. Do, do you uh, individualise things that people are doing in the gym um, or on field with any other methods or, or is there any other ways you might shape what a person might be doing so it um, might be slightly tailored uh, towards like positions or... Um, maybe individual strengths or weaknesses. What, what do you sort of do in that space? Again, this group taught me a hell of a lot. The, the ideas that they've got and the intellectual property that they've got and the creativity that they've got is just amazing. So when we assembled on the 5th of January, we had about three weeks to prepare for our first Super Rugby game. So in terms of would a big bench make a difference, would improving someone's clean technique from the floor, um, probably wasn't the difference maker for us, but increasing our ability to have a higher movement vocabulary, be able to sustain shapes for a little bit longer and giving them the freedom to show us as service providers what they felt made the difference. So from an individual level, we had a sharpening session every Tuesday and every Friday going into a day off for those first three weeks of pre-season and we'd use our heart rate system and we'd set goals, whether it was a more of a high intensity outcome of might be 20 minutes over 85%, or it might be that we're trying to address more fat calories and get a deeper um, energy system development from that perspective. And that might be a longer hour 15 session, but we would just put up um, some frameworks around that. So it might be, we encourage you to go whole body. We encourage you to go speed to feet. We encourage you to go something isometric. We encourage you to go something movement-based. Here are some ideas and we demonstrate them. So there are your starters for 10. Or if you've got a better idea, show us. And as long as the outcomes are coming from an internal load perspective, let's just move either with intensity for a short period of time or let's move continuously. But show us what you feel will make the difference. But it can't be off feet. The reason for the no off feet from our perspective is we wanted to deliberately overreach. We were going into a day off 
and also historically for a lot of our players who wanted to drop fat mass off feet had been the philosophy or it'd been the default go-to. Uh, for us, it was relatively non-athletic. We felt that that compromised ankle, knee, hip trunk and we felt that it dropped our ability to move in a diverse range of manners. So the boys really enjoyed that freedom. Uh, we we're fortunate to use the Mount Smart facility where the Warriors train, good mats area, good space. And we could just watch the boys explore movement. They might grab each other and do some pummeling. They might grab each other and do some isometric holds, but they would use the live feedback to individualize themselves, which basically gives us as coaches the ability to take stock and reflect as to what are oh, here are some common themes this shape seems important this seems important they seem to like to do this this player decays when he does this so it was really just a reflection session for us as coaches but it was an individualized session at the autonomy of the player and we got some really good feedback from taking that approach they'd have their own music they'd have peer driven they'd have accountability um, but when you come together in a small space of time that creative approach was something that, um, yeah, held us in good stead. Mm -hmm. So you used this for the uh, like energy system work, conditioning work is, is what I've sort of got from that. Yeah. What was the, uh, and you, you might just say, hey, you need to spend uh, 10 minutes above 85% of your, your max in this, in this session. Um, there's the um, polar dashboard here or whatever you're using first mm -hmm. beat, who knows. Um, make sure you hit those numbers or you need to be at above 70% for I don't know, maybe, like you said, the, maybe more calories from fat, who knows. Um, what was the best thing you actually saw or the thing that you really like, man, that's pretty cool. I'm going to use that in the future. The, the cost of pummeling was really high for us. So we, we could get really efficient using crash mats, really expensive movements, but with low impact. So it might be a tuck jump on a crash mat. It might be a splashback. Um, it might be just a roll, but the ability to really have to push to generate force out of that unforgiving surface from a, it just sucks the life out of them, but three tuck jumps might spike you. So rather than having to do lots of work with high impact to try and get a, to try and elicit a response, the, the use of a crash mat was really high for us. Um, pummeling and the different forms of pummeling, because often that plays with the heart rate strap, but actually the ability to reduce the, the entry speed of the collision, but just pummel long, slow holds where you're really grinding that, that tension through the neck, the ability to squeeze and control your breathing. So close contact efforts mixed in with really violent efforts being sucked out of you off a crash mat were two ways that we probably haven't explored deeply enough as a department previously, but, uh, seemed to be a common go-to for the boys over that three weeks. And we used it a lot with our replacement sessions as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love it. I love it. Um, when you start thinking about the adaptations you want, it doesn't really matter what mode you use, as long as it's on feet, like you were saying, but it doesn't mm. matter too much about what mode you use, as long as you're getting what you want out of that session. And whether it's uh, and the pummeling and that type of thing, wrestling generic. Um, I'm sure everybody that's listening has... Uh, or if they haven't done wrestling, um, they need to. But if they have, they understand how quickly the heart rate can go up uh, when in a wrestling type environment. Yeah, that's awesome. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. What about for the for the gym? Did you use like you've got that for the conditioning uh, aspect? Did you use a similar approach in the gym? Say, hey, um, this this exercise uh, maybe an RDL for hip extension. 
if you've got a better option, um, come and show me. Did you have uh, instances like that in the gym as well? Yeah, so for our key lifts, we, we were pretty heavily coach-led. So we wanted to make sure we were proficient in our key lifts. So we would heavily guide on whether it was a squat or if someone came in and told us they could squat, but actually just looked like a front squat, we'd just use some visual feedback and just try and recalibrate them down that route by explaining what we wanted to achieve from the lift. Um, quite a lot of trap bar usage. Um, with the amount of grass-based work we were doing in the preseason and what we thought we could get bang for buck for, as opposed to it might be a front squat, but actually there's no load on the bar because you're so suppressed and you've got the next day coming. So that, again, that ability to lift at the end of the day, um, our ability to produce, for example, say a muscle clean or a hand clean rather than from the floor and get genuine intent with a slightly higher load, but with less complexity, which tried to have a really simple approach. So it might be you keep a muscle clean for the whole season from the hip. It might be you keep a trap bar for the whole season. It might be you keep a bench for the whole season or a floor press understanding why they're your staple go-tos and then our assistance lifts absolutely there are several ways we could do this something single-legged we may go split squat we may go bulgarian we may go step up your choice it's maybe a single-legged hip thrust we want it done for these reasons we just want your best work today so structure at the start freedom at the end but understanding where that freedom's come from Mm -hmm. that's cool that's cool I'm going, to, I'm going to ask you um again and around something that uh, you got shown by the players what was the best mm. thing you, you got shown um from the players maybe you've seen it before I imagine you would have but uh that they come to you and say Paul we want to do this instead of that and the uh, sort of accessory work or uh or non-core lifts that, that were coach led yeah they, they came with well they came from 14 15 different environments so the ideas were high um, and it was just really just trying to work out the suitability of that. But certainly the single arm lifts, um, we had some really nice work with the landmine, just in terms of probably just giving away a little bit of load, as we always do when we add variations, right? But just showing that vulnerability piece of where you're pressing out of. So rather than being tight and in and more conventional, just coming out there. So just probably adding density to a rep. Is it a one and a half rep actually? Is it adding a band to the end of it? So rather than a landmine throw with a partner catching it, adding some more, it might be a, a double pump. It might be through the work they did with bands was quite exploratory to put themselves in better shapes for the breakdown, better shapes for the scrum. So the work with resistance bands to make more genuine shapes and the work the boys did in, around landmine work was probably the biggest uh, athletic learnings that myself and James, uh, who works with me, yeah, took out of that. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Um, for, for the for the listeners uh, right now, um, just just for the last minute or so, Paul's been giving a, a little bit of a very demonstration um, on the call. So basically, like a fly type movement with the with the landmine mm. was was some of the things he was uh, sort of exploring there. And um, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. You can always learn a lot off the athletes you're dealing with. Um, Mate, I want to swing back to some of this uh, screening stuff. And obviously you had your, your screening with the players. Um, and that was to sort of uh, be, is, is it a go or no-go type day or what is the level of uh, go mm -hmm. can we really get after? 
Um, did, did you have or use any like performance assessments or performance diagnostics that might uh, be like, okay, this is what this player needs to focus on or this is where they're at right now, this is where we need you to get to. Um, did, did you do any of that or did you have any of that in place? Again, it had to be uh, suitable for our group and we came in blind. So assembling on the 5th of January, uh, we had had our medical reports and we had to come up with a decision quite quickly about how we would measure aerobic capacity. Historically over here, the last five years, it's been a Bronco or that 20, 40, 60 meter test times five with 30 odd turns really being derived from league in a sport where turns super important and the athlete body weight is very different to what we have in our population. So we went for a 1200 meter track test and just took the turns out. So we went for the 1200 meter time trial uh, and we're noticing up to a minute difference, sometimes a minute and a half. So if you've got a prop that's 130 kilos that might run a 630 historically, getting closer to that five or 450 even for a, for a 1200 just evoked real confidence in the athlete that they could actually go and they recalibrated, as we mentioned at the top of the conversation, what a 10 was for them. Jeepers, I'm actually pretty fit, or I'm fitter than that. But actually, from our perspective, then, well, why is the turn so costly to you? Why do 31 or 32 turns take four seconds at a time? Because we need you to be more athletic. Your body weight can be a blessing and it can be a curse. So actually getting over your own inertia right now, there shouldn't be a minute 30 discrepancy for the same distance just because of some submaximal turns. So we used that as an education tool, but it gave us the ability to get a marker quite quickly. Uh, similarly, when we came out of uh, a, a bout of positive COVID cases, we wanted something submaximal but incremental. So we did a no turns yo-yo or a yo-yo uh, recovery level one. But with the athletes with ankle uh, issues or ACL history, we used a no turns yo-yo. So just a 40 meter strip. And instead of turning on the 20, just let them go through. So we still had that staging of effort, but would withdraw them about a level from what we felt was acceptable just to check in on heart rate response. A uh, bit like a 30, 15, if you like, but just trying to get a more sympathetic way of finding out where an athlete was aerobically at a point in time. So we used the Bronco with those who could and go to a decent level. We did use a no turn yo-yo. We did use a yo-yo and we did use a 1200 meter just to try and find out what it got the best effort out of a player. Because sometimes you've got a poor turn and you're pulling them out at 14.3 of an intermittent recovery level one, but you're not finding out what max is. You're just finding out that they're a terrible turner. So that, that for was sure. a big performance market for us. Yeah, interesting, interesting. Do you have a, uh, um, like a ballpark? It's almost like a change of direction deficit or something like that where, um, hey, if, if you can run a uh, 1.2 uh, time trial in X, um, but you do uh, your Bronco in Y, that's too big of a difference. Um, and, and you need to work more on this change of direction stuff, like uh, change of direction endurance it might even be. Um, do, do you have a ballpark that, that you go with to sort of give you, okay, you, you, he's got good change of direction endurance, he doesn't or she doesn't, um, depending on who you're working with, and, and this is when I know I need to work on it? 
Yeah, that's that's exactly the rationale we were going for when we came up with the philosophy of this. Um, we certainly said no turn should be taking you longer than two and a half seconds. And we think that in our higher performers, it's more like that one to 1.2 when you average out across the 30 or 31 turns. But we need a, a, a greater exposure to a test repeat test to have a look at that. But that's part of our off-season exploration, I suppose. So we've done some nice work in the past with Daniel Kadlich, um, just in and around some of the agility pieces. And we'll continue to work in that space because we have a lot of high game sense, highlight reel, explosive, bouncy movers. But they're probably, in spite of the qualities they've got, not because of the qualities they've got. So as we spend more time going, right, you've got a strong, explosive RSI in a closed situation. You've got an anaconda-type grip in your groin squeeze. But when it comes to a really violent 100-degree-plus turn, what happens when you have to do three of those on the bounce? So density is really important to us going forwards. Repeat D-cell, repeat axel, repeat change of direction. What's the cost of that? And what's can we do it as training interventions and as prep interventions to set us up to succeed? For sure, for sure. That no, makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. So that was, uh, say, energy systems type uh, uh, assessment piece. Were, were there any sort of uh, other strength and power diagnostics besides just sort of drop jump and, and your counter movement jump? We didn't this season purely because we kept it relatively simple. Uh, we're also um, so fragmented in our structures because of COVID. Um, everything was mainly grass-based and screening orientated. We probably objectified performance more than any athlete had had in their environments previously. So there was that paralysis by analysis and we didn't really want to assign numbers every time we did a performance. Um, it might've been a nice to have, but I think it would have been too much for us. Mm -hmm. Man, I hear, I hear on that. Man, I want to I swing back. I touched on it a little bit before. Um, Maybe the changes you'd made since uh, 2018 when we had you on the podcast last. Um, we mm. talked about your sort of strength work and strength power work. And, and obviously there's been some uh, um, improvements and some maybe some little tweaks to, to what you've been doing. But what, what do you think the biggest changes you, you would have taken from um, the sort of strength and power work that you, you sort of uh, described last time or mm. it's around four years ago now, maybe even five years ago now? Um, uh, to where you're at now yeah I think it, because of the environment I was in when we last had the discussion it was trying to prepare players to transcend out of an academy into a first team and then that first team level was below super rugby so there's a lot more emphasis on absolute strength and absolute qualities uh, a lot more time spent on ugly practice and installing technical qualities to allow someone to succeed with uh, more autonomy, if you like, and have better decisions made at a higher level. So 2018, 19, 2020 was spent on developing really excellent qualities to go and put those in more demanding situations where actually probably strong is strong enough. So in that academy setting where you really want to enhance as many physical qualities as you can, so you can perform them under duress, under high decision-making pressure. Um, that's come to the front now where actually is a big bench going to make the difference or shall we drop five sets here and go to a single-arm dumbbell 
because it's got more transfer, the ability to put the weights room in the context of the whole training week. Whereas at an academy level, you can probably get greedy knowing a suppressed performance on a Saturday for your club or at a developmental grade competition isn't actually a bad thing. It's actually just part of development. Mm-hmm. So it's really just putting in context now, how big a number do you need for safety, for performance, and then where does that play in the big picture? Mm-hmm. So, so all right, then I've got to... That- Mate, it makes total sense to me. And the next thing I'm thinking of now, for rugby union, how strong is strong enough for you now? I think it's we're seeing this more and more. So it's the ability to produce and transfer that strength into the movement that's required at the time. So if you can produce a, a 260 parallel back squat and scrum repeatedly and hold that tension for 10 seconds as part of a bigger unit, of eight fantastic but if you actually have got a half squat of 320 and the positional coach says i only need him to half squat i just need him to hold that shape he's excellent at it that's enough so how strong is strong enough is what the technical technical coach is saying is required and the athlete is saying i've got this in competition so really getting a true triangulation of coach needs, athlete needs, and then you as a service provider, as opposed to an extra 10 will make a difference and my graphs will look good. It's actually, you are a service provider. So how strong is strong enough is based on the feedback for me from the competition, from the coach and from the athlete. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure, for sure. It doesn't really matter, right? What What's actually going on off the field? Well, it does matter to a degree, but um, and I want to be absolutist about this, uh, but yeah. it d- doesn't matter anywhere near as much um, com- off the field compared to what's actually happening on the field and how they're performing on the field. And if they're strong enough on the field, but their numbers are way down compared to uh, somebody else, um, but they're still besting that other person on the field, it's not really going to dictate or it shouldn't dictate you necessarily doing something with them because they've got different numbers, for instance. And I think that's important for a population like ours as well, because absolutely, certainly from a concentric perspective, we are strong. um, But in terms of maybe giving away a little bit of that absolute strength, some of that concentric strength for a little bit less body composition, for a little bit more from an aerobic capability, a little bit more from a mobility point of view. So probably too strong. Actually, do we give away a little bit of muscle mass? Do we give away a little bit of lean mass? bit like training as a, as a boxer or trying to make grades are we actually carrying too much inertia in the first place so have we actually overemphasized strength historically have we overemphasized size to the point where it's given away uh, a disadvantage mobility wise or acceleration wise for sure for sure yeah um yeah yeah so, so interesting so interesting um mate the uh the other thing energy system work I know last time we spoke, we spoke about uh, you were going to explore some sort of heat and altitude uh, modalities potentially. Um, have you made any um, any changes to your practice or, or updates to your philosophy in and around the energy system work? Other than really emphasising movement, we haven't really gone down a heat or a, a cooling or any sort of altitude, any of those kind of special sources. We didn't go down that route with this with this population. We just spent more time really learning to tolerate dense work. So dense changes of direction, dense speed to feet, um, 
bouts of work that are longer than a sprint, longer than 20 seconds, because ultimately those uh, those reload passages, the multi-phase passages, the highest skill level at Super Rugby, um, bouts of minute 40, bouts of 220, and you might only do three or four violent actions in that time, but we shouldn't be bleeding out or decaying because of just locomotive activity, walking into position, jogging into position, getting up off the floor. So the energy system work that we've focused on really now uh, in the last seven or eight months has been better physical literacy, better movement literacy and economy, as opposed to um, can we regulate our sweat a bit better? Can we, uh, yeah, can we work harder in hypoxic conditions? That's probably not the difference for us, like we're earning the right to, to go to that space. Mm -hmm. Yep. No, I, uh, yeah, it resonates with me, that stuff. It really does. The, I want to swing the conversation now. Um, I, want, I want to talk to you about research. And you've got a, a particularly interesting um, PhD that, that you're doing right now. And so, mate, can you, uh, can you share with us what's going on there? What, what's the PhD on? Yeah, I've probably bitten off far more than I can chew trying to do a PhD in decision making. But certainly uh, the last four or five years, I've spent a, a wee bit of time now on exploring the decision making processes of strength and conditioning coaches across different levels of experience. And really in the process of using those findings to design and test learning strategies to develop the decision making processes that we make in our industry. Mm, interesting interesting so decision making processes what, what what are those so we've used a form of uh a data capture or exploration called applied cognitive task analysis which is basically a open-ended form of research that allows us to ask open-ended questions so that the recipient can tell us what they actually think about what are the stages they go through when engaging in a task so the primary question used in the research was, um, can you consider a time when you've had to design a program for an athlete or a group of athletes? Can you talk us through the stages that you went through in designing that program? And then just letting the silence be filled with consideration and then coming up with the steps that uh, coaches have a high level of experience and then also done with uh, entry level experience and just trying to look at that task diagram or the stages that the, the coaches go through, finding and generating themes out of their response to then really try and understand what are the commonalities where and where are the gaps possibly with those those early entry coaches. Mm, mm. What, what, what have you found so far? What, what's the sort of difference between the senior and the junior coaches and, and how they have this uh, how, or how they make these decisions? Certainly with the early career coaches, it's a battery of tests. And then it's design the program. So it's test design, whereas it's more of the contextual intelligence as, as we've kind of found with the high level coach. Okay, so what is my actual role in this organization? Why do they want strength and conditioning? Why am I actually here? Okay, what does the head coach want? What are they saying? Shall I observe and I will observe the athletes with the head coach just to get that calibration of coaching eye, of coaching language? Okay, from there, let's just check in with the athlete because this is what we're thinking. Let's just check that there's agreement here. So some reflective listening. Is what we're all thinking over those stages, is it feasible? 
because I may want to do this, but what resources do I have available? How does it fit in the context of the competition? Then design a program and then check in and recheck that with the athlete, with the head coach. So there's that check, recheck, and then actually initiate it. So probably six or seven layers that importantly don't happen in isolation. So the higher level coaches are doing it in collaboration with other service providers, with the head coach, with the assistant coach, with the athlete. They're also checking in with the previous coaches that an athlete might've had. They're really valuing the context that they're in and they're really highlighting the importance of communication as opposed to test design. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, uh, it, that's another thing that definitely resonates with me. You become more and more aware, I guess, of, of regardless of the physical qualities of the athletes and what they might be and what they, uh, what you might need to be focused on, what uh, is important to them and what they view as mm-hmm. important and what's important to the coaches and what the coaches view as important is like an incredibly uh, critical part of, of your job to understand. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I, that, I think that's right on the money. I know you have or have also put out some stuff around doing a, a cognitive apprenticeship or having a cognitive apprenticeship approach. Um, and I just wanted to ask you about that and, and what's the sort of um, story behind that and uh, um, what, what can you uh, sort of fill us in there uh, on that sort of subject? Yeah, so following the, the research with the high-level coaches, the early career coaches, and then some focus group research that's about to come out, Um, the key findings were these high order cognitive capabilities of of situational awareness, improvisation and metacognition. So basically thinking about your thinking or the work before the work. Um, All those deeper skills to be able to interpret the context that you're in. Um, Okay, how do I navigate this training ground situation? How do I interpret this review situation? How do I work with what's in front of me more effectively? just goes well beyond a weekend course or an accreditation or the stuff that we learn in the classroom. So a cognitive apprenticeship is a teaching method that really is focused on authentic learning environments and putting the learner in a situation they are likely to experience in the workplace. Uh, From that position, it has four dimensions of a learning environment, which is content, method, uh, sequencing, and sociology. And so what it's saying from a content perspective is, do you have domain knowledge? So as S&Cs, we're typically taught at undergrad or postgrad level, we get to learn exercise prescription, we get to learn about physiology, biomechanics, we learn our ologies. But then we develop our heuristic biases or our rules of thumb. So I like this form of exercise prescription. This is how I design my programs. And this is how I default to it. But then those control strategies that we teach at a cognitive apprenticeship is, well, what happens if your rule of thumb doesn't work? What are you going to do if you get COVID? What are you going to do if the coach takes your training time off you? What are you going to do if X, Y, and Z happens? So the benefit of the content domain is it just challenges your thinking. And because you're in a situated learning environment, you're practicing that. You're considering the what if scenarios. Uh, the method domain is re- or the yeah the method domain is really around modeling, which is really important. So an experienced SNC in this case is showing a group of learners what they do and why they do it. So don't just go and watch a track session with an experienced track coach. 
at the modeling stage, you're asking, why have you set up like that? Who are your athletes today? Why are you doing that A skip? Why are you doing your wickets? Um, there's lots of why questions encouraged in the modeling stage. Coaching and scaffolding is really then a chance for the learner to give it a go and for the experienced coach just to provide that support and a little probe if needed. Hey, I see you've set your wickets up like that. Have you thought about this? Hey, have you thought about your session design here? How many athletes have you got? And then the end of that domain is really around articulation. Can you as the learner clearly explain what you're doing and why you're doing it? Can you explain what might happen if this happens? Are you able to reflect clearly on that and confidently on that with a, a broad lens, with the end of that sphere being exploration? So the experienced coach has now disappeared. You're going to have a go at fully autonomous session design, delivery and review in the absence of any support and trying to then show what you've demonstrated in your learning. Any of the teaching content, um, importantly in the sequence domain, that needs to go from global, so really broad, safe, to more diverse as we go. We increase the complexity and the diversity of those tasks. So it might be, um, okay, you've designed a, a weights program for an experienced athlete. What about a para-athlete? What if your athlete's blind? What if your athlete's deaf? What would you do in that situation? What would you do if all your weights equipment has been taken off you? What would you do if you've only got half an hour instead of an hour? So just those what if scenarios again. And then finally, from a sociology point of view, uh, yes, it's situated. So it's in the gym or it might be on the grass or an S&C domain. But the important part here is doing it with others. So a community of practice, um, actually the value of, might be at a conference, try out a session. What did your peers think? Giving you that critical lens, but that safe lens to make mistakes and consider a different approach and being really cooperative in that sense as well. So um, again, it's authentic in terms of its S&C as opposed to classroom. And then from there, just making sure you're not fixed in this one approach because you're comfortable in it or because one person told you that this is the way. Mm -hmm. Mate, that, that is super interesting, really interesting stuff, Paul. Um, and I'm sure it's given a lot of people that are running uh, um, internship programs and even doing education themselves talked about uh, potentially how to uh, approach things with this sort of cognitive apprenticeship uh, type framework in mind. Hey, I'm going to finish up now. We're going to wrap things up, um, but I want to finish with a couple of questions um, to do so. Um, these might be um, really big questions, personal views, you can go through your life on them, um, or they might be shorter, short and sweet responses, completely up to you. But the first one is, what's been your big sort of aha moment you, you've had in, in your career so far where something's been said or you've seen something um, and you've just gone, man, this is, this is uh, uh, what I needed to know exactly when I needed to know it. It's the session preview. For me, uh, the, it's the value that that five minutes, or it might only be two minutes, but the time invested at the start of a session to really give the session clear outcomes, to really engage and find out where your group is at and calibrate at that time, because it's the investment that you don't get, get back later on in the session. If you miss that time and you rush, just trying to get into your first activity, you're not on the same wavelength. You haven't agreed your standards of excellence. 
and it's the session preview just gives you so much more confidence as a coach to lead, speak with conviction and hold your space with an agreed set of behaviours. Can you give us an example of what you might say in a session preview or what you might, I know you also spoke about the intent for the day um, that you might have with athletes and how that might be yeah. um, uh, maybe put into the session preview. Can, can you give us an example of how you might set that up and how you might communicate that with athletes? When you're an aligned coaching group and you're an aligned organization, that time at the start of the day to really hear what's important to the group. You might have come off the back of a 50-point loss. You might be off the back of a tight turnaround, whatever it is, but sharing language. So as a, as a service provider, really making sure you're in the room to get the pulse of the group. So if the, if the coaches are trying to shape the mentality of, an aggressive mindset of contact load, whatever it is, trying to work out how you are going to be on the same page and how you're going to align to the behaviours and the intent of the day. Um, if you're outside or if you're reading a journal or doing something in isolation, you're in isolation and you're not going to be as effective as if you put yourself in the room and truly understand what's important to the group on that day. Because then you can go out on the grass and it might just be one or two words, but they're now our words. And we can go forward and go, oh, I'm doing this because it relates to this. We are doing this change of direction drill, but I've been told to work on my reload. I've been told that's important because this time on the weekend, we're going to be asked to kick a lot. We're going to need to be able to work. So just trying to align the S&C language to the performance language, to the language of the organization. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's cool. That's cool. Mate, next question. What's on the bookshelf? Any uh, any books or courses you'd recommend or read uh, recently that you've, you've really loved? Yeah, a big one for me is I did some work with Dr. Stephen Rolnick in the UK before I left Cardiff around motivational interviewing. Again, I think once we get relatively far in our learning around the theory, just getting buy-in. But one thing that certainly paralyzed me a few years ago was what happens if people don't comply? Like, is that a you thing? Is that a them thing? Are we playing heroes and villains? Motivational interviewing, I'd go back to a lot just in terms of working on my communication skills. doesn't matter who it's with, whether it's with my, with my children, whether it's with my wife or whether it's with my athletes and coaches. Um, spending time engaging, actually spending time around focusing, evoking and then planning something. So being really deliberate with how I'm communicating. I could be directing, I could be following, I could be guiding. Um, but for me, coming into conversations without an agenda and yeah, if, if people are having to work in that space or they're trying to navigate conflict, uh, I'd highly recommend looking into some of the work around motivational interviewing. Mm, cool, cool. Check it out, people. I imagine the skills anybody in, uh, in our domain or in many other domains will be able to use and apply pretty, uh, pretty quickly. Paul? Awesome, awesome uh, podcast episode. Really want to thank you for your time this afternoon. How do people get more information if they want to learn more? Uh, yeah, not overly active on Twitter, but uh, certainly at Coach Downs would be where you might see anything I've put up on there. Uh, other than that, um, feel free to, I'll be at the conference that's just been, um, but feel free just to uh, hit me up on, on social media and I'll, I'll be happy to reply to you. Yeah, awesome, mate. Awesome. So like I said, Absolutely awesome conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Um, pleasure to have you on. Thanks very much for the opportunity. It was great to have a chat.
Okay, okay, okay. Have to mention our sponsors, Val Performance, before we leave. As mentioned, they make the Nordboard, Human Track, Force Decks, Force Frame, uh, Smart Speed, Spark Jump. They are great supporters of the SA and this podcast. So if you're interested in any of their products, please check them out. Valdperformance.com or they're on the socials at Vald underscore performance on the Instagram and at Vald Performance on Twitter. I will say they also have some very educational material in those places as well on the socials. So that's another podcast done and dusted. And until the next episode, I'm Joseph Coyne and this is the ASA Podcast.